This call may be recorded or transcribed. There we go. Good morning or afternoon, wherever you are, Tom. Yes. <laughs> Here I am. What time is it for you there? It's uh, 6 p.m. 6 p.m.? 6 p.m., yeah. 0600 hours. And you are in Norway? That's right. Yeah. Uh, you're By your accent, I assume you are not a Norway native. That's very good. Born in Pasadena, California, right next to your old alma mater. My dad. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> At Huntington Hartford Hospital, I think it's called. How did you Hello? end up in Norway? Yes, that thing one I met I met a I met a beautiful Norwegian girl when I was seventeen and I couldn't resist her, so I just moved here. And I got her still. Oh well, God bless you. Good job. Yeah. What? Sure <laughs> yeah, I, I did the the inverse is I uh Met a beautiful Indian girl while I was passing through South India at my cousin's wedding and convinced her to give up her medical school and move to the U.S. Uh-huh. And uh, so she sometimes wonders if that was such a great trade, but uh, I'm glad she did. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Long-term decisions. So this was literally 63 years ago. Wow. And that is she, impressive. She's the mother of my four boys. <laughs> uh, I assume you have some grandkids at this point? We do. We've got five. Yeah. Which country do they live in? Uh, four of them live in Norway and one in Switzerland. Okay. So you're definitely putting down roots there, it sounds like. Oh, yeah. Very much so. I mean, I'm I'm now both American and Norwegian citizen. So mm. I... Uh, I this weekend I voted in the New York gubernatorial uh, uh, election, and I also voted in the Norwegian election for parliament. <laughs> ah, I'm a double-powered voter. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting too. Uh, uh, Norway, I believe, has the the, uh, the largest, at least largest, non-Arab sovereign wealth fund, right? That's right. Filthy rich. The, the, no, politicians, the politicians made an interesting decision, and that was to save the, the, the oil earnings and not spend them all. And they've actually done that quite responsibly. Yeah, Hello. Speaking of that, this is fairness. I was just doing uh, some background on Tom's life in Norway. And this is actually oh. a good segue because. Um, Norway made the decision to sort of nationalize the oil revenue and make it part of a, I guess, an endowment is the way I can yep. think of it, right? It's not money to yep. spend, money to That's invest. Right. right. And, future. Yeah, and this is the uh, interesting thing that I was thinking as a topic to frame our discussion. So just to bring everyone up to speed, Tom has been writing about datocracy and data-driven decision-making for Possibly as long as I've been, as at least as long as Ernest has been alive, I think. <laughs> I may be a little older than that. And the discussion we, Ernest and I have been having has really been about, uh, it's gone many, many directions, but it's really come to the decision of how do we create um, better modes of being human? And Ernest's vision uh, is about like making humanity self-sufficient and scalable enough that we can colonize the solar system. Uh, my ambitions are a bit more short-term. But the thing that we that I was most struck by by your writings on datocracy, Tom, was um, this issue of how do we make better decisions together as a community? Like for example, the decision that Norway made to nationalize and uh, I guess annuitize or something like that, the oil revenue rather than spending it is the sort of thing that well-functioning societies can make these pro-social long-term decisions that make everyone better off in the long term rather than a few people better off in the short term. Right. And that's a, 
it's, it's remarkable in that it's kind of novel, or at least it feels like that these days. And uh, that's well, you can, the, the you can imagine the, you can imagine the temptation of politicians to use that money right now to themselves look good, right? Right. But they didn't. <laughs> they made themselves look yeah. good by thinking about future generations. Mm, yeah, amazing. and you know, I'm having sure. a, uh, you know, and to be fair, Scandinavia sort of has an unfair advantage in that they have relatively homogeneous, long-lived societies. Right. Uh, right, where everyone says, well, I remember the decisions our common ancestor made a thousand years ago that turned out pretty well for us. Uh, <laughs> and, and so, you know, well, you know, bully for them, and they're a great role model. But one of the interesting questions is, um, I guess very specifically the question is, can, can we approach the way we use data differently to give our heterogeneous, uh, Source time scale communities, the ability to do those kinds of pro social long term decisions. And I thought maybe a good place to start time is outlining your vision of datocracy, specifically, I think the role you define called uh, datocrat decision makers. Yeah. Uh, so, datocrats are anybody who has a voice, has, we would call it a vote, but I, I Sort of resist using that term, but when you franchise, franchise I think is the technical term, right? They're they're enfranchised into this community. Yeah, they're enfranchised. Yeah, but the the cute part is once you start thinking about this, you you are not any longer limited to the conventional idea of a person who has the right to vote. You can suddenly ask questions like, should children have influence? And uh, should dead people have influence? And should uh, bodies of water and forests have influence? See? And sometimes the answer is yes, why not? <laughs> dead people? Children? Um, uh, I don't know. Like a child. So I think there's two different. Uh, words and concepts of influence here right because one is agency like who has the ability and authority to act and right. you know we can make some legitimate concerns about granting uh, agency to you know non-living non-human species but the other thing which i think is the interesting point is that you want their interests to be represented exactly and that yeah. i think is is is, is really the interesting a data franchise tends to incorporate both of those, but they are different things. And um, I'm curious. Um, so the datocracy raises the question, and then um, the question. The interesting thing is that you described a. Um, well, I think one of the ideas is, is sometimes it's really a question of whose data should be considered in making decisions. Right. Uh, and, or, 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 or what entities the data? We use the word entity being the datacrat, and we don't prejudice the idea by assuming they are even human beings. Oh, <laughs> or normal. So, so in that sense, okay. So in that sense, your data datacrat is not. So let me kind of break it down into terms to see if I can understand it. So the datacrat is what I would call a data source. It is someone who produces or is the uh, authority on a set of data that should be considered. And then your DMM is sort of the person with agency, the one who gets to make decisions or is responsible for making decisions based on those different data sources. Is that a reasonable framing? Um, roughly, yes. So uh, now, by the way, uh, uh, it's up for discussion how much data of what kind, but I, in, in my Datocracy book, I envisage a primary source of what we call the datacrat values. And let's just imagine they have 10 values they're allowed to have, and one is like long-term um, uh, interest for children. Another is for education, 
Another is for Green Planet with climate change, right? And what they do is they can sort of uh, uh, move some sliders indicating their prior priority for these different things. And those values will be used to make decisions like what they should vote for of money allocation or of legal change. Mm-hmm. That's like the, uh, the filter, sort of like filters through which they analyze data and make those decisions based on the that's filters. Right. That's, that's right. That's right. So instead of voting for a part party or a person, you, you, uh, you, in a sense, put your vote for a cause, which are your values, right? And those are used uh, on every case that comes up for uh, decision-making is your values, not a party which may be corrupt or maybe a minority party making deals or all kinds of things going on. That whole idea of a party and a politician is gone. It's a direct relationship between those who have the right to have an opinion or vote and the uh, the actual allocation of uh, laws and um, uh, uh, sort of revenue and things like that. Right, and maybe rather than opinion or vote, I maybe can, are you okay with the term preference? You say, you know, I am. Thing, I'll live with that. Yeah, preference. we can. Yeah, right. absolutely. So what you're describing are their preferences. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So this sounds similar to what I've heard called the median voter theorem. Are you familiar with that term? No. So the basic mm-hmm. idea is that a just society uh, has a spectrum of preferences, right. and that the optimal decision making is one that reflects the median voter, and that it's not skewed towards you know whichever group screams the loudest but like you know this this is a a sort of utilitarian kind of thinking that like well this creates the most good for the most people and therefore having that data and being able to interpolate to the media solves that problem i see the concept but it's it's uh, not where i am this is really largely individuals with preferences Mm -hmm. that they can modify through time which and those preferences, those values are used to effectively vote for changes. Well, I think mm-hmm. this is where okay, this is this gets into some of the mechanical details, which is fascinating for me. Which is that um, uh, my understanding is that so the the data crafts are the sources of data, are sources of preferences. Yes. And uh, we have you know at least initially like this ten-dimensional grid that they fill in their preferences. But then the right. second question is, okay, uh, so one of the phrases that we've been using on this podcast is the idea of data sets and analyses, and there's a certain duality between them, and the data sure. set is sort of the histor- historical record of sort of past decisions, if you will, or past events, and then the analyses is the process used to reconcile it. So the data set is in some sense this set of preferences across all the data crafts, all the entities that contribute data to this pool. So what is the um, nature of the process this uh, the DM, DDMs, the decision makers use? Is there any uh, prescriptive or descriptive constraints on how they make decisions? Right. Now, I've outlined it at a fairly high level, a general level, in other words, uh, that uh, the, the, the values need to be taken into consideration in the same way would a vote for a party or a vote for a person uh, influence the decisions that get made. Uh, but there, there, I, I could uh, definitely go into more detail. What I envisage is that in the long term, different organizations like countries and counties and uh, states uh, will uh, implement various versions of this evolutionarily, step by step, through maybe a hundred years. And so there will be adopted different algorithms and different sets of choices and different um, enfranchisements of different types of data crafts. In other words, I, I foresee a variety out there. What I'm trying to do is get rid of the politicians and political parties and give uh, mainly humans more direct influence over change and choice. You mean right. individuals? 
Do you Sorry, mean, the, or in, in, individual think, entities. So that's actually one of the questions I had: is what counts as an entity? For example, right. is it <laughs> is, is it is it because I think this is actually so. so like I love this overall vision, and, and I think at some level we're in alignment. To me, the interesting questions are some of these um, mechanics, and where where are the hard problems that are not obvious how to solve, which you think you know prototype or theorize about. And so one of them is, you know, um, like for example, especially when you get to you know, there's a there's a sliding scale of uh, agency, right? So, like, my opinions on, say, abortion are very strong and um, somewhat contrarian to my community. Um, so, that I feel like I have a lot of agency over those decisions. Whereas, my opinions on, say, gun control are much less well, uh, well thought out and probably just reflect kind of my immediate cultural environment. And kind of shift based on the cultural cultural winds around me. And you have the same problem with like, you know, uh, especially when you get to like children or uh, you know people who are dead, people who are not yet born, uh, animals and natural resources. It's like, what is the granularity that you accept? Uh, okay. Because you say, does one vote for all the oceans, or does each drop of water get a vote, or? <laughs> Okay. The first, first thing is, I, I expect, as I said, uh, a huge variety uh, of cementations and granularity depending on you know where it is and what it is in the time evolution. Um, uh, so, uh, but by the way, one, one of the devices in the I, I tried to write, I forget, is it 200 pages of architectural detail trying to give solutions to some of the problems that naturally occur here. Uh, and everything I've done is just really a draft to prove there are some solutions to some of the problems. But mm -hmm. one of the major things is the, uh, the, the, let's call them the top 10 values that people put in there as their initial vote. Those will, generally speaking, uh, automatically cast votes in a multitude of things. The, the, the person has the right to say, uh, before you cast my vote here, I want to look at the details and your premise. In other words, we're making the, the thing transparent, how, how the artificial intelligence is voting for them. And the people should be able to change their vote, pull back, even change their preferences when they see what direction is going. In other words, it's, it's mainly on automatic, so people don't have to spend all day being in the Senate uh, and hearing the debate. But it, it, people can decide when, when they want to intervene and uh, change their minds about things. Uh, okay, yes, there's actually a term of art for that. It's called revocable proxy. I, I spent a deep dive on election methods a decade ago, and I think right. that's the thing you're describing, is revocable proxy method. Now, Absolutely. The, okay. okay, so that's the so that's actually useful in terminology and things I'm familiar with. And helpful, helpful for our audience if they ever listen to this. Is that well, let me describe uh, a few other terms to kind of help me wrap my head around this. Let's assume we have something we call. We're having a, who are yeah, who are affected yeah. by a certain set of decisions. Right? It we could didn't hear you. Oh, sorry. So let me introduce the term polity, if I can, as the group of enfranchised data crafts uh, this is kind of the appropriate scope for making this decision. So it could be like at the city level or the global level or whatever. This right. decision is going to have an impact on this group. So this is the quality. And then um, what's interesting is that, and this is one of the things I always found fascinating, that we don't distinguish uh, very well in our system, is there's a problem to be solved uh, to find a certain way, and then there's various proposals for how to solve it. Right. And so in that world, you could say, okay, given a well-defined problem and a, a series of well-defined alternative proposals, then you could imagine that um, the, um, uh, there's a um, analytical process, let's call it, or analysis, 
which says, okay, based on these preferences, this is how we rate these proposals, and this is the decision we expect to make. So there's there's a problem, there's the proposal, and then there's this decision. And the analysis is the process used to reach the decision, and it could have any number of human and uh, automated processes behind it, but the um, uh, the interesting is, I think the first rule is that everything is transparent. It's right. not like there's a magic block and someone lifts out a bit of white smoke. It's a, the idea is that we have open data, uh, open data sets and open analyses. So you can say, wait, given the preference that I expressed here, uh, that's leading a decision I don't like. And therefore I need to update my preferences or update the analysis. And so that the system can be self-correcting in that way. Good, yes. Okay. So that's the, that's yeah. the other thing that comes to mind immediately when we have this discussion, uh, going back to the election theory, is Arrow's theorem. Uh, I don't know if you've heard of this term either, but the basic idea is that given is that uh, uh, the, the Condorcet paradox, I think, is the other uh, way of talking about this, is that given three options. You can easily have a community or an uh, that says, I prefer A to B, I prefer B to C, and I prefer C to A. Uh, and that's just what is sort of the uh, interesting paradox. Because uh, you know, the other extreme, by the way, instead of saying preferences in the abstract, is you could actually submit the proposals themselves to the polity, right? And they can say, okay, I like option A better than option B, et cetera, and do ranked choice preferences. But that leads to Arrow's paradox, which is you can get these weird cycles. And one of the interesting things is that there is a social mechanism for resolving Arrow's paradox, which is deliberation. If you have a rational individual or who actually is able to ex examine all the assumptions and sort them out, uh, then we can avoid that paradox in ourselves. And if you have a rational community where we sort of see each other's data set and understand the context of what they're saying, you can resolve this. And this leads to another um, innovation. Uh, there's a group, uh, a, a bunch of uh, uh, writers called the Fishkins. I know the son, Bobby Fishkin. And they wrote a book um, about deliberative democracy. And I don't know if you're familiar with this term, but it's kind of a, typically we think of democracy in terms of voting. But they make a case, both historically and philosophically, that you know that is useful for a certain set of things. But a better thing is the idea of a deliberative body, uh, where you get a group of people together to examine the evidence and argue about it and talk it through and rationalize it. They actually did this for California five years ago, or maybe ten years ago by now, uh, to bring them in and have them talk about the issues. And what you realize is that you, you prepare a set of briefing papers, and then you give people a structured format for discussing these things. And you see not just what people's preferences are at the beginning, but what they are at the end after they've had a chance to socialize, normalize, and deliberate. Because what you really want right, is people to have well-informed, uh, thoughtful uh, decisions rather than sort of knee-jerk reactions. Actually, uh, uh, yes, but. I think there's a lot of people who just want to get the monkey off their back and let an intelligent system carry out their will, and they can get on with totally different things than listening to debates and participating in them. In other words, they're right. called them the, the lazy voters. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. No. So, and, and they talk about rational apathy in voting. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that uh, so? Yeah. But the problem is, of course, is that. But you, so the so there's a couple of different ways to deal with that, right? So it's like so the whole point, of course, is that you can't have everyone debating everything all the time, or you go insane, right? That's how we yeah, right. went from democracy to republics, right? But then that led to this problem of the principal agent problem. So a big piece of it is transparency, um, right? But the other uh, the other uh, lovely phrase I just learned in the last year is uh, the technical term is sortition, but it's basically rule by lottery. In a, which is basically the way we select juries. So we said, like, hey, okay, not everybody's going to spend all their time deciding all these things because that's, uh, you know, 
we talked about this before, Curtis was really in favor of empowering the individual and giving them access to all the information and all the tech facts and all the tools. It's like, okay, in principle, you want to have access to that. But in practice, you'll drown because you can go infinitely deep on any tiny issue and then you're neglecting all these other issues. And so the idea of sortition is you say, okay, we actually have, uh, you know, we can't have everybody doing everything, but, you know, what is the saying, right? The, the, you know, giving power to the people who want to have power uh, always ends badly. And so, because the power becomes corrupted. So the idea is you have these sort of jury set up. It's like, okay, and you make sure that they're demographically diverse enough uh, that you have this, that they, so you have like a grand jury that says, okay, these are the top issues facing our polity uh, this decade. And then you create another sortition to sort of define it. And these are all open public processes and saying, okay, these are the top issues. These are our best solutions to the problem. And then you have, I mean, really, I think the, the, um, it, it, it is that you have these different love stages in the process and that you use this technique of sortition to get a group of people to deliberate about it and give you know, either a decision or at least a first draft summary of the issues for people to then digest and drill down on. So that's kind of how you get the scalable version of deliberation. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting yep. to me is that the phrase that I've been playing around with lately is that you have a data platform. Is, is this space where you can uh, enable these kinds of conversations and encode them in a way that people can, um, you know, uh, the phrase we ended up with was rational trust. It's like, okay, you know, there's always a lot of, you have to trust somebody for something because you can't decide everything yourself. Um, but it, it's rational, at least, if you at least know the data trail and the analyses that have been used in the past and will be used going forward. And the more transparency you have about the more, you can say, yeah, I trust this is good enough for how much I care about this issue at this time. Or right. conversely, actually, I don't. This is a big deal. And that I always have the opportunity to... Um, Another term we use a lot, which you're probably familiar with, is the idea of forking, right? Or, you know, which is to say, hey, I know that the main policy is the policy is default algorithm to use these dimensions, these data sets. But, like, I think that's really broken. I want to be able to come up with my own additional or alternate metrics and analyses and publish that and, you know, build awareness that, like, hey, there's a better way to do this. And so, that's the idea of, of having sort of a GitHub-like data platform where we can have these conversations. And right. uh, uh, the mechanics are simplified so we can focus on the human things that we care most about. Right. The wheel By the way, you just put so, me onto a, a, a thought that the, the juries, and call them that for the moment, they could focus on trying to categorize what the proposal is about in terms of the values that are out there, like how much is this for environment, how much is this for health, and, and, and we would trust to do it and trust their evaluations better than other things. But that's just one path to making a match between our needs and proposals. Right, yeah, and there's so many different layers, right? You, you could have a jury, you know, like at a given point in time, it's like, okay, Locally, we want to evaluate these proposals against this values, these pref- this preference data set. And then you have another group who, you know, spontaneously stands up and says, well, no, these are the wrong values to be using for evaluating this. We'd like to propose an alternate metric. Uh, and, and, and the nice thing about this is that you get people to argue about which data set and which analysis they're using rather than having to rely on tribal loyalty as a proxy for that. Yep. Yes. That's the main idea. Uh, you know, that we can uh, uh, base things on people's values on a case-to-case basis and not the tribal loyalty that comes with parties and politicians. Good. Yeah. And, you know, and the idea is that, you know, you can sort of grandfather them in, uh, well, okay, I'm lazy. I'm just going to vote for 
the leader of my party to sit on these meetings for me and use that as a proxy for my values. Um, and it's like, I don't mind if you're doing that as long as you understand that it's revocable. And, right. and they understand it's revocable. <laughs> so that yep. they say, well, actually, I disagree on this issue. And then, yeah. Now, uh, so this is cool. This is where we, I think we're all in pretty good alignment. Here's the interesting um, hard problem we've been wrestling with recently. I'm curious about your take on this, Tom. Is uh, our previous guest that we had a uh, six little six episode miniseries on is a uh, data vendor that I work with. I'm on the board of his startup for obscure historical reasons. Uh, but one of the things we talked about, and one of the phrases we use, is the idea of semantics versus syntax. And the idea is that we have sort of an analog experience of what it means to be us. And we can kind of feel these things. And then we try to put with a syntax. We can say, you know, I have these beliefs, uh, but I can encode them into, you know, these 10 metrics, for example. But it's always an imperfect match between the semantics and the syntax, right? So one of the uh, areas that I diverge from a lot of my brethren here in Silicon Valley is that I actually believe there's a difference between these things. Uh, you know, I have some friends who very literally and seriously believe that everything that makes you a human being can be encoded as a stream of binary digits and uploaded to the cloud. Um, uh, uh, I do not subscribe to that belief. I was curious where you sit on this or if you run into this issue before, Tom. Okay. Um, I, I'm trying to get my mind around it. Uh, I, I, I believe that um, numbers, I believe in numeracy. I believe in, for example, uh, putting a number on your concern for the environment or health, even if it's just the number one to ten, okay? And I believe in numbers because of clarity, right? Not because they, uh, uh, they're they much better than just saying substantial or more or better, okay? So I, 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 I believe in, in, in numbers as a communication tool superior to uh, ambiguous words. That's my starting point. Um, uh, I, I also believe that a lot of things people think cannot be quantified, uh, examples in, in my area, things like security or usability, amazing how many people think these are really important topics, but they can't put a number of any kind on it. And what I've found is that it is possible to put um, objectively measurable numbers on things, uh, on, on any quality or value. And I, 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 I believe in using tools like that to communicate better about values and qualities. All right, so let me see if I can summarize what I heard you say, which is that uh, numbers are necessary, but not always sufficient. Yep, that's a good start. There, there are numbers, have... numbers are a very good communication tool. And they don't have to reflect the absolute perfect truth. But they have to be better than normal human political words. I'm going to give you better security if you vote for me. Right. You know, it's funny for me. I have the same uh, attitude towards words. Uh, <laughs> is that you know, both from, from my perspective, both words and numbers are kind of a form of, of digitizing the analog. And digitizing it means you can transmit it and do all sorts of wonderful scalable things with it but it's always a little lossy. And I guess the theorem is that um, uh, the, within any given context, uh, it is possible to find a workable uh, set of syntax, digitization, words, numbers, whatever, that capture the problem well enough to enable a rational solution. Okay. Let, let, let me interject here. My, my entire professional life has been devoted to what I call multidimensional thinking. In other words, the top 10 qualities or values that people or corporations have. And uh, what, what I found is people are uh, very conscious that there are many dimensions that they should consider, but they're very bad at systematically considering a set of, for example, 10 of them. And they're very bad at articulating any one of these. Uh, you know, they fall back on vague 
highly ambiguous words. A simple example is the United Nations 17 sustainability goals, you know, ending hunger and improving education. I've written a separate uh, book on that called Sustainability Planning, which we can give away to the audience and analyze the fact that it's extremely ambiguous and muddy terminology of the world there. And I think it can, we can communicate about multidimensional ideas a lot better. Yeah, and what's, what's interesting is that was actually how we started on this narrative arc. Was uh, Ernest, you want to explain your idea of what I was calling smart documents? Because I think it ties into this issue of understandability and uh, yes. quantification. Mm -hmm. Smart smart documents are um, a way for for writers to encode uh, a lot of the context that is uh, lost when people read a document. So. Uh, meanings of words, meanings of terms introduced in the document, uh, the context, what's going on uh, around the time that the document is being written. All those things that we use, what do we use? Uh, appendixes, we use indexes, we use glossaries to kind of work around the fact that they are not in the main body of the document. So Hyperlinks and footnotes, yeah. Yeah, all those yep. things that is, feel like hacks, and they are hacks, right? Uh, but instead, um, the writer who has the most information about whatever is being written should be able to encode all that information or, or as much as possible in the document itself so that the reader can then uh, customize the experience. So, you know, uh, uh, Tom, I don't know if you're familiar with programming, uh, but programmers they, in programming languages have these tools called syntax. Yeah, Ernest, just so you know, Tom has been writing books on IT uh, for decades, so he actually oh, okay. is something of a guru in this space. <laughs> so he probably has literally written some of the books on programming. <laughs> uh -huh. All right, all right. Okay, so you know that yeah, programs, for, for programmers to read them quickly, you uh, code, uh, I mean, uh, what do you, you format the code so that you can, you know, know that this is a, a, a instruction, that this is a variable, that this is even a constant or, or a, a, a variable that you can change the value of so that you can read code really fast. But we don't have that in English. We don't have, uh, you know, or we, or we get a bold and italics maybe, and sometimes big caps, okay. but nothing that can show you uh, the meaning, you know, so this is a verb and this is this subject, so that you can read sentences really quickly by having the text itself um, identify the, the parts of speech, right? Uh, you know, subjects and verbs and all those things. So I think that, okay, with this smart document thing, uh, a reader, either the program that is uh, formatting the document for the reader or the reader um, himself, himself or herself could say, I wanna see uh, actually also encode the reader's uh, reading ability. Uh, so if a reader is, is a high school student, then you know we, we encode uh, or the reader displays information that will help that reader understand the document, you know, which could be more advanced. Or uh, if you are a scientist and you are uh, okay with advanced concepts, then the uh, document will appear to you in a natural way that you can understand. So, right. there, yeah, so that's so Ernest, I, 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 I like this concept a lot. I, I believe you'll see that I go in this direction heavily. Um, I've invented a thing called language, a planning language, which does a lot of what you're talking about in the mm -hmm. planning sphere. Planning meaning objectives and strategies and designs and architecture. And uh, mm. so uh, I think we believe in the same things that uh, we need to learn to communicate better and tailor better so that people get more out of the communication experience. <laughs> and I have some devices, and you're mentioning some other things, but that's uh, more power to us both in helping people understand stuff. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's do you have any good resources? There's like a, like a five minute intro to language 
Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, that would be something I'd like to understand better. Because I like the okay. concept, but I'm not uh, sure I've wrapped my head around it. No, okay. We will now for five minutes if you feel like it. Uh, uh, okay. Um, goodness me. I, I, by the way, I've, I've sent you two books, um, uh, digital manuscripts that you can share with uh, anybody. Now, they, they aren't long, so we're going to try and do the short version right now, right? Five minutes? Okay. Yeah, go for it. So, right. So, language, um, it, it's about what we're talking about all the time here, multidimensional values, right? Mm-hmm. That's the core. And uh, uh, I think that's a native human thing to be concerned with many simultaneous, if you like, threats to life and survival. You know, everything from the, the temperature to the, yeah. the leaping lion to etc. So yeah. uh, I, I, I found the word concern useful because it can be either positive or negative. Oh, okay. So having dimensions along these but, areas of concern. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, concerns is good. But yeah, it's all okay. But so I, I start there and I say, uh, in order to uh, deal with and thrive and survive, we have to consider a set uh, of things like any human being does. Now, language tries to formalize this. In other words, it says, uh, when you're considering any problem, like the United Nations Save the Planet thing, uh, you need to identify your 17 primary goal areas, hunger and education. And you need to publish and deal with them simultaneously. Because if you don't, uh, you can't let one of them eat up all your resources and giving no resources to the other ones. You have to have a balanced, uh, you know, you, you you can't just go for infinity or the moon or perfection with any one of them, uh, which people can dream about. But the moment you do that, you steal all the resources from everything else. And in fact, the system dies out. So mm-hmm. language is constantly trying to keep track of uh, the, uh, the, the, the values, any number you like, uh, uh, but at least something closer to a top 10 rather than just one, like the temperature or the money. And they also try to keep track of the resources. Let's call that time people money for the moment. Uh, We have to do anything. And uh, it it tries to keep these in mind in models, actually in tables, like on a spreadsheet. It tries to keep uh, all the qualities and values and all the costs uh, under um, in, in the model simultaneously as our as understanding of them evolve. For example, when uh, suggesting new strategies, you know, what is the influence of that strategy on all ten of the values and all five of the costs? Uh, so so that, that that's the simple idea. And I also found that I have to normally go to quantification of these multiple dimensions, but I can simplify down to tables is just like a plus, minus, and a zero uh, quantification uh, to give people a rough idea of what's happening. But for serious work, for example, the United Nations uh, planning, I'm doing actually some peace planning in the Middle East right now. And uh, it's, it's incredibly complex and incredibly large number of stakeholders that are in their, their opinions. And uh, if you oversimplify the modeling, you you will get bad answers. And if you if you uh, try to make the modeling more realistic, you'll get better answers. But there's a heavier overhead for planning. Anyway, long mm-hmm. story short, uh, I acknowledge that we have to try to deal with these multiple values and multiple costs, probably numerically, probably simultaneously, and probably dynamically as things change. That's language in a nutshell. Okay, so, is this, so is this like those two pieces? One is sort of a discipline or a mindset and how you approach and deal with problems. Exactly, presumably there's some sort of tool or technique used for sort of how you record these things in a standard way to help enforce yes. that discipline or encourage yes. it. Yeah, so we, we, yeah. Um, we, I designed language so that it was computer intelligible having been mm-hmm. a, a, a nerd. 
So everything there is, so we, we have, uh, as early as decades ago, uh, we built some prototype uh, tools which could take garbage in, figure out what that garbage meant in terms of requirements, and it could uh, um, find designs automatically that match these things. So that, that was done in the 80s as a doctoral Wow. Thesis, and it still works on, it still works on PCs today. Now, uh, just, so we've been messing with that for a long time. I can give you details on that. Uh, but uh, uh, bringing up to date, in the last four years, one of my clients at Citigroup, uh, as a hobby on this side, built a tool called Valplan, V-A-L-P-L-A-N. And it, it basically uh, mechanizes a lot of things, like automatic prioritization when you put in a new strategy and things like that uh, and, and it, it mechanizes the whole language by the way language is defined in my book from 2005 called competitive engineering and I'm giving away digital copies to anybody wants them and you can buy a paper copy from the publisher but that that uh, 500 page book it, it is the standard for the planning language and that 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 book is the, um, if you like, the instructions for the valve plan, the, the tool. And so we're, we're, we're using uh, valve plan on it. But uh, before we had the valve plan tool, we were using spreadsheets and things like that to mechanize a lot of the ideas. Could you repeat the name of the book? I, could, I, I, could, I didn't get it. The name of okay. the book. Okay, competitive engineering. If you look at oh. Google, Tom Gilvin, competitive engineering, you'll find okay. it. it's a published a published book. But I, I uh, offer, uh, I, I now have freedom to offer free digital copies to anybody who'd like it. So you'll find, uh, you know, just, just ask me or, or uh, go to my website. Well, actually, yeah. you go to my website. If you go to my website, guild.com, you'll get uh, access to free copies of competitive engineering. Okay. Great. So, uh, two things you said that I really liked uh, that really struck me. One was this word intelligible. Uh, we've been focusing on the ideas of readable and understandable. But I like this right. idea of something that's both human intelligible and machine intelligible, which is stronger than just readable, but probably more tractable and understandable. And so that's a really fascinating word I want to meditate on a bit more. The second thing is you mentioned you were trying, I believe, to solve peace in the Middle East. Is this a hobby? Yeah. Or are you working with some organization? No, that's your clients? No, I can, no, I can identify the organization. Uh, so th there's a, a group that's called Abrahamic Reunion. You can look it up. And, hmm. uh, that was, it was formed about 2015. And the, the simple idea is, if we get all these parties in the Middle East who are constantly uh, fighting each other and hating each other, to break bread together, I mean, literally have dinners together, something they've never mm. done before, most of them, then we'll break down some barriers and fears. Uh, so I'm simplifying the bit, but that's been a huge element of their program. Now, I got involved with a board member who needed a business plan for funders, and uh, I agreed to teach. Uh, we've now got a couple of uh, uh, pe people who are working on using my methods to plan the business plan, uh, but we're, we're using language all the way through to clarify our uh, values of, for example, uh, equality of uh, different religions and sexes and things like that, to take an example. So we are modifying our primary goals, and then the next stage is to fit them with uh, strategies. That, and then the next stage is to post those strategies, and the next stage is business and getting the money and resources to implement the strategy. But yeah, we're planning uh, in the whole land quite literally. All right. This is fantastic. Um, I want to kind of keep on the time because I have a day job to get back to and it's probably getting close to dinner time for you, Tom. Uh, what I wanna, what we normally do is like, like we'll take uh, like a few minutes to share any closing thoughts, anything that's important you didn't get a chance to have off. 
and then have a discussion about kind of what happens next. Because uh, I have some oh. things that, you know, Ernest and I need to would like to discuss. And, you know, if you're open to doing a sequel next week, we'd love to have you back and see if we can find a topic uh, that is uh, appropriate for you. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of announce we're in the closing phase now and give you a chance to share anything and then Ernest and then I'll wrap. Okay, I'll do a, a short summary. I believe that the technology has arrived for the first time in the last decade to eliminate politicians and political parties and the role they play. And uh, we need to start evolving towards using that form of automation so that people get better control of their lives and their economies and their nations than we can do with the outdated idea of having human politicians and political parties. And so I've written a democracy book, which we can share free with anybody, uh, as a detailed outline of how this might come about technically. I've literally written the architecture of it in, in uh, over 100 pages. So uh, and that's really to start the discussion. I found uh, very little information on the web about this, to put it mildly, although I've noticed the World Economic Forum has had a discussion about it. So uh, so, so my, my book is uh, trying to start a discussion and hopefully an evolution towards different political worlds. Thank you. Any thoughts on what uh, you might encourage us to focus on or that you might be interested in discussing in a future episode? Yeah, uh, the, the key thing that keeps on cropping up in every context, the peace in the Middle East, the United Nations, and autocracy, is the ability to articulate our values very clearly and quantitatively well-structured, even for very complex um, uh, environments. So uh, in other words, articulating values could be a topic title. Articulating critical human values, you know, like peace and driving and uh, 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 environmental protection and all that. We're not good at it. And I believe everybody can easily learn because, and I do that, I teach people, easily learn to articulate these values much better, and then we're going to communicate better about our values, that's all. Okay, Ernest, over to you. Uh, uh, yeah, Tom, I have a, a, a couple of questions. You said that you uh, did some research and found that some, a few entities were covering the autocracy. Uh, do you mean the term, or do you mean the ideas behind the uh, autocracy? Okay, uh, mainly the term, although I thought I invented it at one point, but I got like two hits on Google, which is very few for anything. Uh, 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 yeah, but, I, but I've, I've had some problems finding any uh, body of literature doing this. By the way, I got inspired by Morgan Freeman uh, history channel where he mm. mentioned the idea. Okay, it's not the idea is out there. There's very little literature, very little planning, very little debate, like close to zero. So I, I thought, okay, I will detail something and, and I will, uh, you know, in, in participate in debates and, and get debates going. I think what we need in the not too distant future is experiments. You know, maybe in one city in California, the city council, <laughs> just to see how it works and if people like it. And then we evolve from there. And we learn. Mm -hmm. uh, another question is that we, uh, Ernie, myself, and, and these other uh, guests that we had, we're discussing the role of culture. You know, individuals yes. and entities have values and, and uh, ideals. Yeah. But then yeah. above that is the culture, you know, uh, in several societies have different uh, values according to the culture, like in, uh, I think, uh, where, you, where you are, Absolutely. yeah, where you are yeah. right now, uh, they have the yeah. value of um, a family. It's, it's family is very important, more, you know, more important than yeah. in America, for example. And, and honesty, like people are really, you know, to the point of, Sometimes of uh, you're, you're uh, right. You're right. Somebody else. It's a very yeah, so, heavy value. Yeah. Right. Yeah. 
So yeah. uh, by the way, you can, you can guess that in this peace in the Middle East uh, thing we're doing, we have to consider those different cultures, and we are doing it. We are modeling it. Okay, so you're absolutely right. Culture uh, uh, eats planning for breakfast. Culture uh, is is very important to model and to take into consideration to communicate about. So I'm doing it, and it's built into my language. So you can do it. Oh, awesome. It's an outside thing. It's inside. Mm-hmm. I can show examples of it. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, anything else, Ernest? No, that's 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 it. Okay. Well, first of all, so, thank uh, you so much, Tom, for all all your time. I have a few comments, but sorry. Uh, do you want? Feel free to say, Tom. Yeah, uh, I, I was just going to say, uh, Ernest and I need to get introdu- uh, an introduction, maybe spend an hour on FaceTime talking over some of these things. But uh, I'm I'm oh. open for that when when he's ready. Okay. Yeah, we can add it to the. If you can uh, join us, you know, next week or whenever, yeah. Yeah, we we can do that. But I, I was thinking almost one on one. Almost. Okay. I, I, I've I've done yeah. one with Ernie for an hour, but mm-hmm. I think one on one and you know not public, and we'll uh, it'll raise a lot of issues and we'll make some progress. So I'm up for that. Yeah. In yeah. The meantime. Yeah. Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Great. So that the 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 uh, you, we're all in the same iMessage thread, and so you can set up a FaceTime, mm-hmm. go Apple. Um, so here's so anyway, let me re- get the closing word in here. Um, one is that first of all, thank you so much, Tom, both for spending all this time with us. Uh, secondly, for making all these resources free and available to us and our our, our listeners, assuming we have any. I haven't checked lately. Uh, mm-hmm. but, uh, but then, uh, especially you know, just for this um, intellectual quest you've been on uh, to like understand making decisions. And not just for businesses, but also for humanity, uh, thinking about love and peace and the environment and all these things. And uh, I just want to celebrate that because that is a um, a beautiful thing in this world of which we need more of. And uh, it's great to be someone who's been fighting this battle for 50 some years. Uh, you know, um, the interesting question for me that I want to leave is, is that is that you know. Um, uh, you know, the, as I, I may have told you before, Ernest is the artist, and you know, he's the one who's got the deep passion of burning in his soul to build a future 100 years from now that's different. Uh, I'm the, the the product manager. I'm always asking myself, okay, what can we build now to bring that future closer? And when, when you were talking about language, I, I realized, you know, I have that problem right now with this podcast. <laughs> Me, you, Ernest, our friend Denise, it's like, we all believe in this thing called datocracy. But one of the problems is that we don't actually know what that means. What are the essential features? <laughs> what are kind of the incidental features? Like, oh, could we use your tools to solve our problem and build, because the same problems like solving peace in the Middle East or protecting the environment, those are kind of large open-ended problems. And it may take, you know, a few years and a few million dollars or whatever to actually know that it works. But like if we could use some version of these tools among the three or four of us and say, oh, okay, this is what a datocracy movement should look like. These are the values and dimensions. And we look at this and say, oh, yeah, this actually captures what we mean. Maybe that would solve this issue you said, like, is that like, oh, okay, this becomes not just the marketing for detocracy but literally the model uh the the, the okay. demo now, i think i think you'll find that in the the book which of course nobody's had a chance to read there is a lot of detail of this nature already so uh, if you can put aside an hour to just skim the book and see what's there roughly that'll answer a lot of questions i'm willing to use time to help people use language to plan their thing if it's idealistic okay in other words yes i'll be pleased to help you guys and have a dialogue about it show you how it works in practice for planning your your stuff great. Yeah, and also great. like and also i think that'll be really helpful for me to understand uh if this can encode your values right because i think you bring a slightly different you know context yeah. to yeah. democracy than we do and like, if we can actually use the tool to say, oh, this is where our, our values overlap. This is where there's some yeah, diversity. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that would be actually really exciting. 
and very well, concrete. And I, can, I can guarantee that will happen immediately because it does all the time. <laughs> That's just okay. Well, so the actual the homework is for us to. Uh, so I will skim the book. I'll make sure it's in the show notes for anyone else who wants to, and Ernest can see it. And you'll mm-hmm. have a chat with Ernest sometime the next week. And then would this time work next week to try and walk through that exercise? of encoding yes. our values of the uh, language? Yeah, this time works. It's a good time, anyways, yeah. Great. Well, I guess we're starting our second series on datocracy with our new special guest, uh, Tom Guild. Uh, thank you very much, and I look forward to next week. Okay, see you guys later. Bye-bye. Thank you, Tom. Okay. Thank you. Thank you, Ernest. Thank you, Tom. Bye-bye. Bye.